time to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Okay, so we're here with Sarah Ruckelman and also Sriranti Maitra. Hello. Hello. Um, and we're talking about the philosophy of fiction. So, first of all, if I have three statements, if I say Harry Potter lives at number four Privet Drive, Santa Claus has eight reindeer, and Luke Skywalker is a Jedi, as an English student, Sriranti, I'd imagine you'd agree that there's nothing grammatically incoherent about those statements. No, all good. So why does that pose a problem for philosophy? It poses a problem for philosophy because philosophers want to kind of look beyond just the question of is this grammatical to the question of is it meaningful? But philosophers often go straight from the question of is it meaningful to can it be true? And the question is, if those sentences can be true, what makes them true? Or how can they be true? What is it about the world that makes it true that Santa Claus has eight reindeer as opposed to no reindeer or ten reindeer? Or why do we say that Harry Potter lives at number four perfect drive instead of number five? Hmm. Compared to nonfiction, it's very easy to give answers to that. You know, why does old MacDonald have five sheep in his farm? Because you can go to his sheep and you can count each of them. Or why does the Queen live in Buckingham Palace? Because, again, you can go out into the world and you can investigate facts and you can see, ah, yes, here is the person that we refer to by the phrase the queen, and here is the palace that we call Buckingham Palace, and the first one lives in the second one, and it's all very easy. But when it comes to statements about fictional objects, it's not entirely clear what we should be looking for out in the world to make these sentences true or false. Mm. So with ordinary statements in philosophy, when we're trying to ascertain the truth value, there's often a reference. So if I say there's a microphone on this chair. I can look at the microphone. The microphone corresponds to the mm-hmm. the object in the sentence. So if we if we make a sentence about something that happens in Harry Potter, is there a reference? Does that still work? Well, that's the million dollar question. That's the question. Yes. Mm. You know, in ordinary reference, you can you can point to things. I can point to a microphone and, and you ask, well, what microphone are you talking about? I'm talking about that one. Mm. But if you ask me, if you read a sentence like uh, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit mm. and then you ask well which hobbit which mm. what what am I going to point to and this is precisely the, the issue with determining the truth value of statements about fictional objects if you want to do it by referring to particular objects now of course philosophers have many different answers there are those who say that fictional objects are completely unreal there's nothing out there and this is just a problem and we have to come up with a different sort of meaning for fictional statements that's not like the meaning for non-fictional ones. There are people who say, well, there's these abstract objects and, and they're out there yeah. and we talk about them. And then there's a lot of questions about, well, how do we talk about them? Why do we know anything about them? And then there are other people who will actually say there, there's, there's something that happens, something specific to the creative act of writing, that prior to Tolkien writing the sentence about a hobbit living in a hole in the ground, there were no hobbits, but after he wrote that sentence, then there is one. Mm. And now you could, you know, you could say, well, which hobbit? It's that one, that one right there that he just wrote that sentence about. Mm. So you can sort of will a fictional object into creation by writing it? It's one of the, the kind of 
powerful aspects about writing creative mm. fiction. Do you have to do it in a particular way? So could I just make up an object now and give it no features, no qualities? Does it have to have some sort of coherency? Well, I think it has to have some sort of description because otherwise, how are you going to write about it if you don't have, mm. if you're not going to be saying something about what sort of properties it has, what sort of relations it is into other things? I don't think that you could write about something that's kind of purely featureless because as soon as you write something about it, it has to have some feature because you've just written that feature down. You can't have a concept of nothing, can you? The concept has to be a concept of something. Yes. Like, you, you can't have... Just there, there's there's, you there's just talk an about empty it. speech bubble uh, above my head. Mm. But then, you know, like you just said, you can will something, I'd say, you know, as uh, someone who's studying creative writing right mm-hmm. now um, and who did literature... Uh, Everything that I've studied is predicated on the idea that you can will something into existence. A pink elephant doesn't exist in the real world. But once I say pink elephant, there's an image in your head. Mm. So in some form, it does exist. Mm. Right? Or you, you know, This is going to be very irreverent and probably some people aren't going to like it. But if you think about the Bible, right? that image of Christ or certain places that do actually exist like Golgotha or mm. like Nazareth or like Jerusalem, these places exist and you can refer to them the way you just referred to that microphone. But people today, there are some people who would argue that that's a fictional account. Some people would say, no, it's historical. Some people would say it's semi-fictional. So then which of those things becomes real and which of them are evident and which of them are self-evident? And... Mm. Mm-hmm. It's weird also because if you say Sherlock Holmes lives on Baker Street, then you have you have the Baker Street in Sherlock Holmes's world and you yeah. also have the Baker Street in the real world, mm. which is real. Is the Baker Street in Sherlock Holmes's world different in some way? Well, it is different in part because it has Sherlock Holmes living on mm. it. Does that make it then a fictional object or a fictional environment? Ooh, well, that's a. At what point do descriptions of real world things in fictional contexts become fictional themselves? That's mm. a really interesting question. Mm. And this is actually the sort of question that people who read fiction and write fiction are interested in, but often you don't find philosophers talking about these things because already we've moved away from the question of what are we referring to in order to make these sentences true, which is Mm. kind of a very canonical philosophy of fiction sort of question. Um, My own interests in philosophy of fiction are more of these tangential questions. Mm. Like how, uh, when, when we are mixing fact and fiction, what happens to the real world things? in the context of this fictional thing. Are we creating some new Baker Street? Or is it the actual Baker Street that is out there, but we are doing something to the real-world Baker Street by writing this fiction? Mm. What do you think about the point of view that... um, I think, so, doing some reading, it seemed like some philosophers think that they've solved this problem by assuming that whenever you're sort of in the realm of talking about these facts, then if you assume... A universe of discourse then as long as it's under that pretense everything's yeah. fine so if we assume the world of harry potter or the world of sherlock holmes then everything within that can be internally consistent yeah so i think that that i mean that sort of approach does handle a lot of things you mm. do face the issue that some authors particularly people who wrote multiple stories about the same characters over a very long period of time weren't always consistent 
So mm. I don't know the details, but there's uh, the example that always comes up in the philosophical literature is there is something that um, Conan Doyle says at one point about Sherlock Holmes that is directly contradicted like mm. 30 years later in another book. So there is still kind of the issue of how do you handle the uh, explicit contradictions like that. But even if you've got a way around that, there's still an interesting question of, well, how do we make true statements about these characters that are not kind of within these fictional worlds? So one example that you might get are these kind of cross-fictional comparisons. So Commander Sam Vimes is a better detective than Miss um, Marple, mm. for example. What in the context of Discworld or whatever sort of you know, fictional universe you're looking at allows mm. you to say... You almost have to combine the universes in some way and make a comparison. And they might have two different sets of rules to them, Mm. which makes things much more difficult because Discworld's a fantasy world, whereas Miss Marple, if I'm not mistaken, is set in the real world, where there isn't magic and wizards and death who speaks Mm. in capital letters. (laughs) So they might have a different mechanism to judge the the detective. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And if we say that fictional objects exist or fictional entities exist in these worlds would they then be able to be willed out of existence or once they're created are they just there for good see this is something quite interesting because there does seem to be an asymmetry that as soon as someone comes along and says that in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit there are no hobbits in existence if someone else comes along and says there are no hobbits Mm. or even if tolkien came along and said there are no hobbits. It's not clear to me that this actually has the same... that that those sorts of statements are privileged in the same way mm. as the creative ones. It seems like it is much easier to create a fictional object than to destroy it. Mm. It's like the author gives away some sort of ownership the yes. moment they will something into existence. It's like in Harry Potter, if someone... Um, if J.K. Rowling was to write a, a sequel and say Harry Potter woke up and it was all a dream it kind of negates all of the facts that were there mm-hmm. beforehand. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of a fiction within a fiction, in a way. Yeah. yeah. So, like, the, the problem then becomes who has the authority to say that, mm. doesn't it? Because um, if someone who's writing fan fiction yep. says Harry Potter woke up and all of this was a dream, then you wouldn't take them as seriously if J.K. Rowling wrote it. Then people might, you know... People would take it seriously, but I think a lot of people would rebel against it. Oh, absolutely, because there's a concrete idea now that Harry Potter exists. There's a whole universe Mm. that's been created around this character. And And so the question of authority is a very important one because you might think that Rowling has authority over Mm. the worlds that she's created. But it doesn't doesn't always seem to be true that that's the case, that she doesn't have free reign to say what she wants to say anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. Like you, you can murder a person, but that doesn't erase their actual life and existence. Yes. Mm. Yeah, sort of yeah. The same I mean, thing, they're it? then a dead fictional character. Exactly. They're not a non-existent one. Exactly. Mm. And do you think that fictional characters have an age? So I was wondering, in the case of The Simpsons, would it make more sense to say that Bart Simpson is ten years old or twenty-five years old? So in the in the TV program, he's ten, mm-hmm. but The Simpsons is twenty-five years old. Well, the, so this. I think that there can we can talk about fictional characters at two different levels. Again, with this internal and this external perspective, mm-hmm. on the internal perspective, he's kind of perpetually 10 years old, never 
never gets older, never grows up. Mm. But the character has a lifetime of its own because there is this external relationship that it has with the people who create the character and the way the character has become integrated into pop, pop culture. And so you've got all of this kind of external stuff. Mm. Bart's, Bart's 10, but the idea of Bart's 25. I like that. Yeah, yeah that's I good. Yeah. Mm. You see some um, TV programs and films and things where they kind of break the fourth wall mm-hmm. and go into the real world. So there's an episode of The Simpsons, which they did live, I think, a few years ago. And they kind of handled viewers' questions and fans' questions. That must be a really weird problem to fix when they incorporate the real world and they kind of transcend universes. Yeah, I mean, that sort of, that sort of deliberate flouting is, mm. again, a very complicated sort of phenomenon to try to say anything about. And what are the consequences that this would have on kind of the universe internal story after that? How does it change kind of relative questions of authority and you know, interaction like mm. that? And again, these, these are the sorts of questions that I don't think philosophers really think about all that much. They, mm. they leave a lot of these questions to the English Lit Department or the Drama <laughs> Department. And, and I'm, I'm kind of over here in my corner saying, mm. no, these are things philosophers should be thinking about mm. because they are really interesting and they are fundamental questions about the nature of reality. Mm. Well, like you can think of Daniel Day-Lewis and uh-huh. he's a method actor, right? Um, ideally, in Daniel Day-Lewis's world, if, if he's acting out my left foot, in which he's a quadriplegic, I believe, and he can only move his, his left foot, uh, he's spending days and days and days as that character mm. in real life. Mm. Um, he's based on Christy Brown, who did once exist, but who's dead now. So what, how, how, do you, how do you approach that philosophically if you're trying to think about whether or not he's a real person when he's Daniel Day-Lewis as Christy Brown all day for months and months of shooting? Yes. Mm. Yeah, at what point, how, how are we going to use demarcations of personhood mm. to distinguish the actor from the character? Exactly. Mm. You made me sound so smart just then. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sarah, a lot of your work is on fictional languages. Um, could you just first explain what a truth conditional theory of meaning is? It's the sort of con- sort of theory of meaning that we started talking about with just the Santa Claus has eight reindeer mm. sort of uh, sentences. A very typical account of the meaning of languages, not you know, just ordinary English, German, French, not talking about fictional stuff, just tables and chairs and microphones, is that the meaning of a sentence just is the conditions under which it is true. Mm. So if the microphone is on the um, chair... That means the conditions under which there is a microphone that is on the chair. And that's all that mm. that sentence means. So mm. this has problems when we come to the fictional cases because it's not entirely clear what we're referring to or what the conditions for the truth are. But I also think that it's not entirely clear what to do about fictional languages instead of kind of ordinary natural languages Mm. precisely because these fictional languages are operating in a context where all that they're talking about is other fictional things Mm. so we don't have that kind of access to things in the world that we can talk about in the same sort of way 
Yeah, uh, we were talking and I was wondering, um, a fictional language, you know, fictional, you'll understand why I'm putting that in mm-hmm. air quotes in a second, um, if it sees philosophical and social and semantic interaction, uh, like Kinderin or uh, or Sindarin or Quenya, I'm not quite sure yeah. how to pronounce them, uh, or like Dothraki from Game of Thrones or like Navi from the Avatar universe, if people are actually interacting with these languages, learning the vocabulary, there's YouTube videos on how to pronounce these now. Mm-hmm. People are coming up with names in these languages. People have obviously written journal articles and criticism of those journal articles in yep. Kenya and Sindarin. Then doesn't that cease to operate as a fictional language if it is in the real world and it's being interacted with? Yeah, I think that it actually makes a bit more sense to talk about it in terms of natural languages and constructed languages rather than natural languages and fictional languages because a lot of the issues that the fictional languages face you also get with constructed languages like Esperanto Mm -hmm. and other sorts of... um, uh, languages that were kind of developed consciously mm-hmm. rather than kind of developing over time as, as most languages have. And it is actually precisely because we have this, this similar sort of interaction with languages that were originally constructed in fictional contexts, if you want to call them that way. It's because we interact with them in the same way that we do with ordinary languages that I think they need to be taken seriously philosophically. Because you don't just want to say, oh, fictional languages, they're, you know, they're just made of things that are part of a fiction. No, we, we translate in and out of them. We criticize other people's translations. We generate new vocabulary. We generate new, um, new grammatical structures sometimes. And so we interact with these languages as if they are languages on a par with English and German. Mm-hmm. And so you can't just say, oh, my theory of meaning is only designed for natural languages and not fictional languages. Because there's this blur between the fictional languages or constructed languages that are fictional and constructed languages that are kind of non-fictional, it's not clear that we should be distinguishing them just because the one happens to talk about fiction. And it's also not clear that we interact with these languages any differently than we Mm. do ordinary languages. So, yeah, I don't like accounts that will come in and say, oh, we only need to give an account of the meaningfulness of natural languages because these other ones are different somehow because we don't act as if they are any different. And is a language's legitimacy within the language itself? Like, do you need to know the language to be able to um, deduce whether a statement within it is true or false? So you mentioned linear A, which no one's yeah. been able to translate. Yeah. So no one knows about this language, but presumably there are truth conditions within the language. Yes. So is the truth or falsity contained within the language itself, do you think? Oh, so this is this was a, a very interesting issue. Uh, whenever I'm kind of teaching on these questions, what I like to do is put up a sentence of linear A on the board. I expect nobody even recognizes mm. the script. But I want you know, suppose that something happens in the future and we discover the Rosetta Stone for Linear A that allows us to go back and translate all of the, um, all of these fragments that we have. What I like to ask my students is what they think has happened. Is the right story that these fragments have been meaningful all the way along throughout mm-hmm. history? It's just that there was a very long period where we didn't have access to that meaning. Or is it the case that those fragments were meaningful in a context where the language was being used and people 
grew up learning the language or were taught it or spoke it. And then there became a period where those fragments were not meaningful because nobody had access to any of the cultural knowledge, any of the inherited linguistic proficiency. And then upon the discovery of this wondrous Rosetta Stone that hopefully will happen someday in the future, they became mm. meaningful again. Mm. We, we were discussing this as well uh, about Bushmen and the Kalahari. And they speak that um, clicking language, which yeah. I think might be called Doom or something. Mm. There's an exclamation mark oh, at really? the beginning. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a fun language. Uh, we'll never be able to speak it ever. Um, <laughs> but we, we were talking about how um, I speak Bengali, Hindi, and English. Those are my languages. And if I was in the Kalahari and I was speaking to a Bushman in, in Bangla, and I said in Bangla, your hair is black. Uh, and his hair was black. That mm-hmm. would be true. That'd be a truth condition. It would yep. be fulfilled. Yeah. But he doesn't know a word of Bengali. So to him, that's it's, meaningless. It's gibberish. That's that's gibberish, and it's yeah. meaningless. Someone is speaking the language. It is a meaningful language, and it's fulfilling truth conditions. But if it doesn't mean anything to that one person, does it cease to have meaning? Does yeah. it become a nonsense language? Does it, in his worldview, become a fictional language? Then? Yeah. Yeah. For all he knows, that you're just you're just sitting there, kind of talking to yourself in this nonsense language that yeah. you made up for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And you also talk about um, fictional languages intended to be meaningless. Mm-hmm. So is it is it min, minionese in the yes. um, Despicable Me? And you also say that it still manages to convey content in mm. some way. I was wondering how you think it does that. Is it through, is it because we're sort of ascribing our own meaning onto how they're interacting and yeah. the storyline behind it. Yeah, I there I think it's it primarily falls out of the fact that human beings are very social creatures and so we have developed a lot of skills for extracting content from our interactive environment. Mm. And language is only one of the ways it's only one means of conveying content. There's facial expressions, there's gestures, mm. there's exactly. tone of voice. Exactly. Even in the context of movies, you also get um, the, the background music. Mm. So you, you kind of get told this is a scary part mm. when the scary music exactly. comes. Or you're do you told. think it's only the, the language, though, that we can extract truth and falsity from? Could we do that from other forms of communication? Yeah, yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, mm. I think that, again, a lot of times people who are trying to give an account of the meaningfulness of language are taking far too narrow a view of mm. what the phenomenon is because it's much more not about language but about how people interact with language. Mm. And it's precisely, it, th- this ties back to what I was saying about mm. wanting to not treat the fictional languages differently from natural languages because people interact with the languages in the same sort of way. Mm. So any way that one of these languages becomes meaningful has to apply to the other languages too. Mm. It's interesting because we're sort of speaking about, we're trying to find meaning and truth conditions within these fictional languages. What if in those languages the same logical structure Mm. didn't apply? So Mm. you had a completely meaningless to us at the moment Mm. language, but then they could say that this was true and this was false in that world. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could switch around all of them Mm -hmm. with that could that still be consistent, do you think? Well, again, because... So there are some problems that would be specific for the constructed languages on this particular sort of issue, because who is it to, who is it that is saying that the language works in the way that you just described? Because mm. there has to be somebody who is putting down some ground rules, and that person is going to have to know something Mm. about 
the logical structures of the language or the meaningfulness conditions of the language. Mm. Could you have a fictional world where there were like square circles and one plus one equaled three and that sort of thing? So this is now kind of moving away from questions of language to kind of questions of, of metaphysics and mm. kind of being and what you can have. And a lot of people are just going to say, no, you can't have contradictory objects. You can't have square circles or um, a lot of people will say that truths of mathematics are necessary truths. They're going to be mm. true in every possible world. Mm. But there are also kind of purely from the, the technical metaphysical side of things in terms of what can you do with philosophy, you can have impossible worlds mm. where you can have contradictions and contradictory objects and the laws of mathematics work differently. I it's, imagine most of the fictional universes would fit within that category. Actually, I think most of them, unless you have an explicit contradiction like you know, Sherlock Holmes both did this thing on mm. this day and did not do this mm. thing on this day. Most fictional worlds are consistent. Could you not have and logical inconsistencies hidden within sort of physical inconsistencies? So Harry Potter casting yeah. spells and things. If you actually look at what's happening, there must be lots of logical contradictions in there. Not necessarily. Mm. I feel like you can find examples of this in real life. You don't even have to go as far as fiction. Yeah. Think of people who have synesthesia or synesthesia. Mm -hmm. do, do you know what that mm -hmm. is? Um, so I, I can't see smells, but a synesthetic person can. So which of us is right? Which of those yeah. things is actually true? Do, do mm -hmm. smells have a color? Yes. Do, do, do smells mm -hmm. have a color? For them, they do. Or for, mm -hmm. you know, an alien, if aliens ever, you know, olfactory, visual aided aliens mm -hmm. ever come to Earth mm -hmm. and, and they can see smells, um, then for them, they just won't understand our worldview and for us, they're lying. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. that's not something that we're physically, mentally capable of processing unless we're anesthetic. So then who's right? Mm. Very hard to say. Or, or, or like that tribe, um, indigenous community in Papua New Guinea that we were talking about, um, an anthropologist was speaking to, I think it was the Dani tribe in Papua New Guinea. And uh, there's a huge oral traditional storytelling there. And it's yeah. meant to be very powerful and you know bring up memories of your ancestors and things. And he was asked to tell a story. And he started telling the story of Hamlet. Mm -hmm. um, except they didn't have concepts of kings or yes. ghosts or castles <laughs> or adultery mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah. So in trying to explain to them not just the concepts of these things, but you know the idea that these things actually happened, they didn't take him seriously. They were like, oh, not only did they not understand that ghosts could exist, they were like, oh, no, 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 you're wrong. What you mean is his father's spirit did such and such, and then his uncle cast this sort of black magic. Mm -hmm. So there's this one man who's speaking a very particular language with concepts that do exist, and which, again, there are reference for. Mm. And then the people in this community just refused completely to acknowledge these at all. Mm -hmm. So in that case, again, who's right? And does that become fictional or does it become meaningless? And just what 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 is the end goal with all of this? What, what, <laughs> what conclusion do you come to when you have a conversation like that? Yeah. Are there consequences if if we just take the blanket statement, we just think all of these languages are meaningless? You know, if once you create a fictional language or a fi fictional world, then all of these normal rules of logic go out the window. Yeah. Is that a problem, do you think? Well, I think, I mean, no, it, it's it's not going to, in principle, be a problem, but I do think that it's not necessary to mm. do that because 
the vast majority of people who are working on, on you know, kind of writing stories or constructing fictional universes, developing movies, actually care very much mm. about keeping things consistent. It may be just internally consistent. They don't care, you know, yeah, I'm going to put magic into my mm. fictional universe even mm. though I know that there is no th- such thing as magic. And then there are going to be certain things that you... There are going to be certain contradictions that you then have to ignore, but mm-hmm. you're going to have to ignore them all in a particular sort of way. So, like, when Rowling develops the types of magic that she does, there are rules as to how it can work and what it can do. There's constraints on kind of the, the scope of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, there are things that, if you've got magic that allows you to time travel, then there are going to be kind of certain issues that arise from that that you have to make a decision about how you're going to handle them. Mm. So are you going to handle a proliferation of Harry's and Hermione's? Are you going to let there be more than one? Or you know, when one travels back in time, you have to put you have to actually put in the rules you can't let you see your counterparts. Mm. You can't interact. You can't let anybody see you. All of these things mm. have to go. So you can't just say, time travel works. Anything goes. Mm. Mm. There still has to be logical rules about how these things function. Mm. It seems like there's like a very interesting distinction between inconsistencies which are intended and ones which are not intended. Yeah. And it's almost like it's up to J.K. Rowling what's intended and what's not intended if she didn't intend something to be inconsistent and then later decided that you know i'll just say it was consistent after the fact yeah she does does do that does she yeah sometimes yes oh Oh, i meant it to be that way yeah 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 but that's kind of it's almost like it's her right to do that because she's created it to some extent but i think it also goes back to kind of you know there even so there are still limits on what she can do that mm. you know, she can't go back and say oh oh this this magic that i may have described is working in this particular way it actually works in this other way mm. even if that other way is kind of consistent with the description that she gave if it's too radically off from the way that everybody has taken it from working yeah the mm. fans are going to revolt and at some point it's not clear how much kind of an author putting their foot down saying this is the way that it mm. is actually has the authority or whether it's kind of the way that it's taken. So the fans almost have like a collective ownership over their own fiction to a certain extent. Yes. And if they disagree with something on mass, then that almost changes the, the yes. world. And, mm. and is it, this is again another one of the fascinating mm. things about these questions is mm. how I what's going on when that happens? How does that happen? How does authority get transferred from the original creator to this kind of mass collective? Mm. I, I think one of the issues with that is that when you're writing, unless you know, you're know you hiding all of your writing away for some reason, like Emily Dickinson, yeah. um, if you're someone like J.K. Rowling, you want people to read your work. You are putting it out there for it to become a physical reality in a fictional world. Mm-hmm. So when she's put down all of those rules or she says, okay, this is how this spell works. Yeah. The reason that she can't go back and change that immediately if she's described exactly how it works is because there's become a concrete reality. There's become a fictional fact, if you will. There's something that is ex- you know, 
it has now become separate from her. Yeah. That yeah. is out mm. there. There's there's an extant fact there yeah. that she just she can't go back and change because now that's become part of a lot of other people's realities as well. If she mm. hadn't shown that to anyone, if she still had ownership of that image and she was the only person with it in her head, yes. I'd argue that it would be possible for her to go back and change whatever she wanted. Mm. But now that it's become a concrete reality for a number of people, the reality changing for one person doesn't change it for everyone else. If mm. I'm schizophrenic and I say that the sky is red today, it isn't for the other one point, you know, two billion people in India. So mm. it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Then I'm mm. the one that's wrong. It's almost like the fictional worlds exist within people's minds. And yeah. if, if, if something is too difficult to change in everyone's mind, yes. then the world doesn't change yes. because it's... It has a very high degree of stability. Yeah, exactly. Religion. Well, <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk a bit about fan fiction. Yeah. And um, something things that you've written in that. So how would you best define fan fiction to start with? Because that's quite a hard question in itself. Yeah, it is. And actually, um, every time that I'm kind of talking, particularly with other philosophers, about what fan fiction is there is a question of kind of how broad or how narrow do you want to uh, do you want to define it i don't like trying to define mm. things like you know what counts as fan fiction and what doesn't or you know general questions about genre boundaries mm. because i don't think it necessarily helps i'm i'm interested in definitions insofar as it helps me do something interesting with the phenomena at hand. And with fan fiction, what I am interested in is basically anything that is taking some pre-established story, mm. however you want to, to interpret that, and doing something more or different with it by people who are not part of the original creators of that story. Mm. And so I think that this, you can take it to encompass a huge amount of things. I once had someone ask me in a talk, well, you know, what about like Alexander of Aphrodisias writing commentaries on Aristotle? You know, aren't Aristotle commentaries just Aristotle fan fiction? Hmm. Mm. And it's like, that's actually a really interesting way of thinking about it. Because you get the same questions of canonicity and authorial authority and resolving of contradictions and so i think that there are circumstances where it makes sense to think of aristotelian commentaries as aristotle fan fiction or paradise lost as bible fan fiction Mm. but i think that there are also reasons where you might want to take a narrower view and specific folk specific focus specifically there that's what i wanted on a particular kind of cultural phenomenon which has particularly grown up since you know the 19 and 1920s 1930s when you first start getting like science fiction literary zines moving on to the online world there is a very specific online contents and it kind of characteristic to a lot of contemporary fan fiction and again because i think what's interesting is how people are interacting with this. Mm. I think that it makes sense to kind of set off things like internet fan fiction mm. from other types of fan fiction because of the of the social interaction that goes on with it. Mm. Yeah, like I draw a pretty, you know, like prominent line 
between, say, Archive of Our Own, mm-hmm. which is a very prominent fanfiction website, um, probably the most popular on the internet yeah. right now, and then uh, a meme on Facebook where Rowan Atkinson's face has been superimposed over the Mona Lisa. Yeah. And then um, the five different adaptations I've seen this year of Romeo and Juliet. One was a zombie apocalypse version. One was an Indian version set in a village where there's two political parties you know, that are fighting against each other. And of course, the daughter of one house and the son of one house are mm. adaptations of Romeo and Juliet. So mm-hmm. I think the idea is where does fan fiction separate itself from a derivation and then separate itself from an adaptation? Yes. Because mm. a film like that, a multi-billion dollar film, multi-million dollar film like Warm Bodies, right, is technically just fan fiction of Shakespeare. Yeah. Even if the scale is much, much, much bigger than a tiny stage in the Globe Theatre. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's true, because you'd expect it to be the popularity of the fan fiction or whatever you want to call it that gives it its almost legitimacy. Like, if there's a piece of fan fiction which is wildly more popular than the original, then you kind of think that that fictional world takes over in some yeah. way. But that's true, because if that's had more popularity than something in the past, then that almost gives it more. Yeah. Well, it's particularly interesting. So, you know, like you say, with story adaptations. Mm. I when I was working on this fan fiction paper, I used that as an excuse to watch all of the versions of Pride and Prejudice that I could find. <laughs> Joe Wright for the win. And I called it research. <laughs> it was brilliant. But something that's particularly interesting is that after the BBC Colin Firth wet shirt scene mm. is that had such an effect on derivative versions of Pride and Prejudice that in many, many, many other versions since then, you'll find a wet shirt scene, mm, even though, even though it's not in the book. It's not in the book. But it has mm. become part of mm. the PNP canon. Yeah. It's also just true of film adaptations in general. It's the Harry Potter films can yeah. sometimes deviate quite a lot from the books, but yeah. I don't know. Some would argue that the films are awful. Really. <laughs> <laughs> I think probably a, a, a less contentious case is looking at the Game of Thrones books versus the TV True. shows because yeah, they are they are kind of actively yeah, diverging from each other. Mm. Um, yeah. The entire Rob Stark storyline, for instance, we now don't know what's true because George yeah. R. R. Martin wrote that, you know, Rob Stark, out of you know the goodness of his heart, married I think it was Jane Poole, and brought her to Winterfell. Uh, no, brought her to the twins where they were all murdered but in the show because Richard Madden is really hot they mm. they didn't want him to die a virgin essentially so they brought in a lovely lady whom he marries flouts his mom insults the phrase with and then gets murdered because of said insult not mm. just because of some sort of political rivalry and so now there's two parallel canons yeah and people aren't quite sure you know which to get their hands dirty in mm, it's almost like it it splits the universe in yeah. two and you yeah. have to yeah. and he's still writing as well which complicates things even more mm. yeah and I believe haven't like the TV shows gotten ahead of the books mm-hmm. so that you know kind of the people who are primarily developing content for that don't actually know what mm. they're supposed what story oh. they're supposed oh, to be they, telling they do though because George R. R. Martin has told them what the ending of the show is just in case he dies okay well Thank goodness. I mean, Robert Jordan died and thankfully left very detailed notes uh, behind to finish out the Wheel of Time series. But I think I think people would probably never forgive Martin if he died before. No, absolutely not. Before the end, he'd find it hilarious. Though, wouldn't he? <laughs> mm. <laughs> he'd just flip everyone off and just lie back in a coffin. Mm. Yeah. Mm. 
Well, yeah. thank you very much for oh, this is being great on. Fun. Yeah, it was great. Thank you.